Starting to feel like New Year's Eve here. It's the prelude to the media new year, which should be, I guess, a week from today. I mean, August 30th today. And so we can say next Monday is the Labor Day holiday, one assumes. And the day after that is really our media new year. When everything gets going, and it kind of feels like, as it kind of has a few years, I think, before everything starts to get started, about a couple of weeks beforehand. And uh, as always, I mean, the stakes are high in here. Like, I just saw this headline on Bloomberg, Russia curbs gas supply to France, to France's Angie as squeeze worsens. Angie says it has secured enough gas elsewhere to meet demand. French Prime Minister urged businesses to reduce energy use. So hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, and I am based here in Berlin, so I am seeing this uh, up close and personal. And what's interesting is the people on the street, I don't think it's really affected them yet. Uh, At least in Germany, like you get your gas bill once a year or electricity bill. So I am seeing stuff on Twitter say like Italian restaurants where their energy bills are going up 10x, or Paul from the Sirius Report who joins us on this week's episode where he talks about a pub that he was visiting where he's like the pub has to shut down or double the prices and like we're all just not ready to double the prices yet. So this energy issue is ginormous. We've seen two smelters from what I understand shut down at least the aluminum smelter in Spain, which I believe uh, Rio Tinto mentioned in their conference call that we profiled a month ago. And then, of course, the Trafigura smelter that I believe is in the Netherlands. And why did they do it? Because energy is so expensive. So this directly relates to mining. Yeah, I mean, the European economy is being strangled. And I don't think that's too strong of a term here. I think that's what's going on. I mean, Economies run on energy. I mean, feel free to comment if you disagree. But economies run on energy, and our energy, at least here in Europe, is getting strangled. So it's getting real over here. It feels like the fireworks haven't started. Again, it's like just before New Year's Eve here. Uh, The fireworks haven't started, but, you know, you're getting some pretty wild setup, shall we say. So we've brought in Paul from the Sirius Report. I understand, like, some people... You know, Paul can be a bit polarizing because uh, it deals with a lot of politics at the end of the day. Like, I mean, I think that's part of what we could say like this episode is about is like the politics behind the mindsets, the like what is the political reality behind a lot of the decisions that are being made here? And inevitably, when you go down the political road, it's going to, you know, half the people are going to be mad and half the people are going to be cheering. Okay. I saw that in a comment last time Paul was on, which was, I love the episode, but I sent it to my friend and he he was offended, you know, and, but I think we can handle it, is what I'm saying. Take them as ideas. You know, it's always, it's back to the crito, Socrates, speaking of the Western tradition, this is what makes us strong, as I said to Paul in the interview, is our ability to criticize in my opinion, this is the lesson of the Crito, the dialogue after Socrates' trial, where he is convicted and he is in jail and his friends say, we can bust you out 
uh, we can get you out of here, Socrates. You don't need to take the hemlock. And Socrates says, well, we're seeing things from our point of view. What if we take a look at the other side, side's view, the city who raised us under these laws? I benefited from all these laws my entire life. I've made all these speeches with the freedom that these laws have given me. And now, at the end, I'm going to run away when these laws are not convenient for me. No, thank you. So I'll just take my sentence and I'll take my hemlock. Thank you very much. And the point of that is, is the charity of interpretation, trying to see, understand the other side's point of view the way it sees it. And I think that's what Paul helps us do here in a way that very few guests can. I think he's, as I say, almost with a surgical precision, he diagnoses a lot of the what's going on in the Western political consciousness. So with that, okay, so we've got a big show with Paul. He has very long answers, so I let these interviews go long because I enjoy them. I think you guys enjoy them. We get a lot of lessons when Paul is on. So uh, I think everybody just, you know, if you're into politics, geopolitics, resources, uh, we're hearing about these metals exchanges. Again, this is your show. <laughs> you definitely want to hear this. So a couple of things for housekeeping here. As we get ready for the new year, we have a new Mining Legends speaker series and this features Robert Quartermain, the founder of Predium, former chairman, and I believe he just was inducted into the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame, and Andre St. Germain, who is chief financial officer of Integra Resources. So I believe you can still get tickets. It is nine days away. Okay, so if we just click on it. It's in Vancouver this time. It alternates between Vancouver and Toronto. It's on September 8th at 10.30 a.m. to 1 p.m., it is $85, and it includes a gourmet three-course lunch meal, a wonderful networking event. Registration opens at 10.30, event starts at 11, event concludes at 1. Sounds wonderful. A Mining Legends Speaker Series luncheon, and that is in Vancouver. We also have the Q3 Global Mining Symposium coming up. That is at the end of September, September 28th and 29th, and you can register your interest today also at events.northernminer.com. Register for free and attend a major mining conference online. You do get the opportunity to send in your questions. Many of them are asked. Also, something to keep on your calendar there. Other than that, we have a really great interview for this week's CEO Spotlight with Chris Frostad of Purepoint Uranium. He has several projects in Saskatchewan, in the Athabasca and otherwise, and some pretty impressive partnerships there or joint ventures with Cameco. So that is coming up right now. So tons to get to here and a bunch of news stories. So with that, if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Instagram at the Northern Miner and on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to Chris Frostad, president and CEO of Purepoint Uranium. Joining me today, I'm very pleased to welcome Chris Frostad, president and CEO of Purepoint Uranium for this week's CEO Spotlight. Chris, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me today, Adrian. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. Uranium is Kind of topical these days, as you know, I'm in Europe here and we have a bit of an energy crisis. And uh, so people, even in Germany, are starting to talk about uranium. So tell us about PurePoint. How's business? How are things going? 
Well, things are changing right now, and they've been waiting to change for quite some time now. We're seeing over the last year and a half, uranium prices coming back up to uh, incentive levels, which is where they would need to be to open up a new mine or open up one that's been closed down. But we're still a ways away from that. But it is heading in that direction, which is getting the markets excited. It's getting money in the bank. People are investing. I mean, it's uh, it goes back a ways. We've been waiting for this for some time. Back when uh, in 2008, when the banks all blew up and Fukushima was t- very topical, we had a real glut of uranium in, in the markets. And Kazakhstan was sort of uh, flooding the market, if you will, with, with low-cost uranium. And Japan was shutting down reactors. So over the last 10 years, we've been uh, seeing mines shut down, production slowed down, price of uranium way too low to do anything about it, really waiting for that rebalancing of supply and demand, which seems to be what we're in the middle of now. Okay, excellent. And from what I can tell on your website here, it looks like you're mostly, if not entirely based in Saskatchewan. So tell us about your projects. Like what do you have going on here? Sure. Well, Northern Saskatchewan is is really uh, uranium central. Back before Kazakhstan got into the business, Canada was supplying about a third of the world's uranium. Uh, right now, we still supply about 20% of the world's uranium. And that's as a result of in that area, we have crazy high grades of uranium and we do find it. So around the world where you would typically mine uranium at, at 0.4, 0.5% up there, they're pulling it out of the ground at 20%. So it, it's it's a bit of a, a bit of an oddity, but it, it keeps us all excited and keeps us all looking. So that's why we're up there. We have 12 projects uh, up in northern Saskatchewan that we've been uh, running for quite some time now. And one of them, our primary project is called Hook Lake. Uh, and it's a joint venture that we have hold with uh, Cameco and Arano, two of the, the world's largest uh, uh, uranium providers. So it's uh, it's been a great project. They have supported us during the downtime financially, technically, keeping us busy, keeping us relevant. And that's quite an exciting project right now. It sounds like it. I mean, those are some of the biggest heavy hitters in the industry. And you're the operator on that project. Is that correct? Uh, that's right, actually, because we started our relationship with Cameco about 15 years ago. And uh, when we got involved in that project, uh, at that time, we were we were doing all the work out in the field. And, you know, over the last uh, the last decade or so, uh, they've been pretty happy with the work we've been doing and what we've been finding. And and we've remained in that spot. So it's it's a, been a fabulous relationship with the, with those partners. OK, excellent. Now. You're in northern Saskatchewan, you're saying. So are you close to anything else? I mean, Saskatchewan is full of uranium projects. So are you kind of off on your own there or tell us a little bit about that? The uranium district is pretty much uh, within a, within an area called the Athabasca Basin. It, it it stretches from one side of Saskatchewan to the other and takes up about the top 20% of the province. Having said that, all of the mines that are currently producing are on the eastern side of that basin along a very specific trend of all of the existing mines to this point. And all of our projects, most of our projects, I should say, are along that trend or within that trend. And that's where we've been working. Our Hook Lake project, though, and our other joint venture with Cameco called Smart Lake over on the west side of the province. And in recent years, uh, it's been identified that that is very prolific as well. Our neighbors, uh, NextGen and Fission, have uh, identified in excess of 350 million pounds right on our doorstep of uranium uh, recently. So that whole area has now lit up and become quite exciting uh, for work as well. Interesting. So do you ever talk to companies like Fission and, and NextGen? And do you guys ever say we should pull stuff or not? <laughs> Constantly. It's like trading ball cards, you know, got it, got it, need it. Really? 
Um, yeah, well, I mean, there's not that many. I mean, let's face it, when things got sure. slow in the in the industry, um, it kind of really reduced down and then now it's back up again. But I, you know, there's there's really only about a dozen of us up there that have been, you know, that are really significantly well planted uh fission and, mm. and next gen. And and there's there's others is Denison and and I so we you know, at, at some of the conferences, we'll pull our resources and throw a joint party or uh, or we're, we're constantly uh, in connection with each other. If somebody needs something and and trying to get a hold of a, say, a driller or, or some other service provider or uh, or whatnot, we're, we, we, we talk quite regularly. So it's, it's a pretty tight knit community up there. That is very interesting. Now, on the exploration front, are you exploring right now and, and where are you exploring in terms of your projects? Well, we've been again Hook Hook Lake over on the west with Cameco as our primary project. We are planning to be there again this coming winter. Uh, winter is usually the best time to be drilling because and working up there because it's it's fairly wet, so everything freezes up and we can wander around freely. But earlier this year, we had a uh, had a fabulous drill program at our at our Red Willow project, which uh, we we uh, found a lot of had a lot of good news coming out of that. So as a result, we're going to be uh, drilling again next month at Red Willow. We'll get that drill going again, time uh, permitting. We'll also get a drill up to uh, another project of ours called Turner Lake, which uh, again has had huge fines right next door by, by our neighbors, you know, and, and on and on. So we have, you know, with the 12 projects we've got, we've always got something percolating to the top that we've got to poke a drill into. And it's uh, so it's, it's, and now with the capital and the funding and the financing available, to do it properly, uh, because it is not a cheap endeavor up there. It's a very busy time for us. Tell us about those costs. I mean, the costs must be going through the roof to get stuff to uh, northern Saskatchewan, I guess, or not. Well, it's pretty well established up there from an infrastructure standpoint and from a service provider standpoint. The problem now is because uh, as as the, the industry gets a little more excited, there's a lot more people wandering around with uranium bumper stickers on their trucks and uh, looking for uranium. So it's, it becomes more difficult on a number of fronts to, to get a drill crew, to get a service provider, mm-hmm. to, to do geophysics, to, uh, to uh, organize permits and sessions uh, mm-hmm. and, and uh, your relationships with the local communities up there. So all of this stuff takes time, which is kind of the bigger challenge right now. And as some of those things get crammed up, like I say, a permit, permit's pretty good. Uh, the, the process is pretty good, but as it fluctuates in terms of the volume that, that the government has to deal with, things kind of get slowed down. And it can happen on the assay front as well. At the end, at the other side of it, you've got to send your your hot rock in to get uh, to get assayed. So there, there's it as it becomes busier, things tend to be a little more difficult to to line up your planets to get a program going. And we've been very fortunate, mainly in terms of the the amount of time we've been working up there, that we we've got all of those relationships uh, well in hand and and it to date it hasn't hasn't slowed us up yet. Yeah, I imagine if you've survived the downturn and uh, had all that time, hopefully that investment is starting to pay off. So tell us about the roadmap here. I, you know, what are investors or just people who are interested? What can they expect from you, and and what are how do you see things kind of like playing out in the next you know year, two years, sure. three years? Well, you know, like any like any exploration company, it's 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 all about drilling and discovery. And I think you know we've got uh, you know between our Hook Lake project, our Red Willow project, our Turner Lake project, these are all projects that we now have are, are drilling in the very near future. And any one of those could you know could get very exciting very quickly. On the other hand, this summer, we spent most of this summer uh, doing a lot of geophysical and prep work on seven of our other projects and getting them ready to take a drill. So as 
you know, as we, we move our projects advancement through this pipeline, we very as quickly as possible want to get them to a drill ready state so that every time we drill a hole, we can reprioritize where the next hole is going to go because it's, you can figure out very quickly whether you've, you've hit something that's radioactive or not. And it gives you a clue as to whether you want to keep going there or, or move on. So you're going to see a lot of drilling out of us is what you're going to see on, on, in moving forward. And following up on on a lot of a lot of great uh, you know uranium finds we've made so far. Okay, excellent. So it sounds like you have news on the horizon. Uh, so what's the takeaway then that you want to leave with investors? What in a sense, what's the sell on your project? Well, I think you know you've got in general as a background as a backdrop to all of this, you've got you've got uranium prices coming back, and you've got uh, uranium demand also coming back. So. You've, you've got a lot of, of upward wind, if you will, under the wings of this, this particular sector. And it's, you know, all in all, it survived very, very well over the last few months when the rest of the world is kind of been crashing and burning. So it's, it's turned into a very stable place right now to be investing. On our side, you know, we've, we've been at this for a long time. We've invested millions of dollars in these projects. And, you know, we, we're looking at, at any one or more of them to be producing a, a fairly significant discovery in the near future. So... All of those things combined, I think, uh, are keeping us all pretty pretty excited from the from the investment standpoint. It does sound all quite promising. So, if people want to learn more about PurePoint, I guess they can go to PurePoint.ca. And as far as the markets, are you guys on the venture? Is that where you are? We are. Yeah, we're on the TSX venture. We're also on the OTCQB in the United States. And you know, I got to say, we've consistently had had very good volume with our you know, with our stock and, uh, and we, we tend to be far less volatile, um, than a lot of our, a lot of our peers, mainly, I think because of our relationship with the majors, we tend to track them more than we do, uh, uh, the rest of the smaller explorers out there. Very impressive. Well, Chris Frostad, president and CEO of PurePoint Uranium. Thank you for joining us on the Northern Miner podcast. Thank you very much. And thank you once again to Chris Frostad and PurePoint Uranium for sponsoring this week's episode. And turning to the website, uh, we have a story actually on mining.com, Bloomberg News via mining.com. Goldman says, quote, buy commodities now, worry about recession later. So Jeff Curry there at Goldman Sachs is doubling down on his commodities call and just says, forget about the economy, just buy. Fascinating. Goldman Sachs urged investors to pile into commodities as most recession risks coursing through global markets are overblown in the near term, arguing that raw materials stand a rebound amid a profound energy crisis and tight physical fundamentals. This is, of course, the headline on mining.com right now. Quote, our economists view the risk of a recession outside Europe in the next 12 months is relatively low. Analysts, including Sabine Schells, Jeffrey Curry, and Damien Kervalin, wrote in a note, quote, with oil, the commodity of last resort in an era of severe energy shortages, we believe the pullback in the entire oil complex provides an attractive entry point for long-only investments. And we have another quote, quote, from a cross-asset perspective, equities could suffer as inflation stay elevated and the Fed is more likely to surprise on the hawkish side. It added, commodities, on the other hand, are the best asset class to own during a late cycle phase where demand remains above supply, end quote. And we have a final quote here. We do acknowledge that the macro landscape remains challenging and the U.S. dollar could rise further short term. So 
as they say, expect volatility in this trade. But Goldman is feeling very bullish. And continuing on the supply chain theme, Honda to build its first EV battery plant in the U.S. with LG. And this is by Cecilia Jamazmi. Japan's Honda Motors and South Korean battery maker LG Energy Solution plan to invest $4.4 billion to build a new battery production plant for electric vehicles in the United States. The news comes on the heels of a string of recent announcements that aim at cutting China out of supply chains for electric vehicles. You know, as Paul brings up in this interview, though, what are you going to do from a labor and energy perspective? Like, we can build out all these cars over here in the West, but don't think you're going to be exporting them, as he puts it, to China if our energy is way more expensive and our labor to build these things is way more expensive. I'm not saying we shouldn't do this, but I mean, it is a powerful point. Leave that to the interview, but, you know, interesting. It also marks the latest plans by automakers to invest in U.S. production of battery cells for electric vehicles as the industry works to meet stricter regulation and accelerate production of zero-emissions cars and trucks. Others have included General Motors, Ford Motor, and Hyundai. Panasonic said in July it would build a $4 billion battery plant in Kansas to supply EV maker Tesla. Last week, news of the Japanese automaker planning to build another battery plant in the U.S. grabbed headlines. Honda and LG Energy and their plant is expected to begin mass production of advanced lithium-ion battery cells by the end of 2025. I guess that's three years away. But it sounds like they're making decisions quickly. Let's put it that way. This isn't a 2030 deal. This is a 2025 deal. The facility will be built and operated by a joint venture between the companies, which is expected to be established this year. And finally, it will be the first manufacturing plant for EV batteries in the U.S. for Honda which is committed to stop producing fossil-fueled vehicles by 2040, the companies said. I mean, it's quite interesting. If you go to northernminer.com, you can see the image. The plan, it looks like a big microchip, which is pretty cool. I don't know if they did that on purpose, but it looks really cool. Their uh, plant rendering. And shifting gears a bit, Columbia abandons plans to tax gold exports. So this is big news for our... Gold companies here, also by Cecilia Jamazmi, Colombian finance minister Jose Antonio Ocampo said the government has withdrawn a plan to introduce a 10% duty on gold exports included in the tax reform bill submitted by the new leftist government, President Gustavo Petro, in early August. The proposal sought a 10% export tax on the value of gold exports whenever the metal price exceeded $400 per ounce. Wow. The benefits of such a plan would have been difficult to measure as illegal miners continue to smuggle the precious metal out of the country, Petro said in an event organized by ANIF Center of Economic Studies. The gold sector had also argued that such a tax would boost illicit export, I'm sure, and reduce investment in the industry while adding a barrier to efforts to formalize small-scale and official miners. And we have a quote from the finance minister, Jose Antonio Ocampo, Proposed export taxes on coal and oil will remain in the bill as the administration of new President Gustavo Petro seeks a greater contribution from the natural resources sector to finance the public sector and his plans to create a more equitable country. I mean, there is an inevitability, it seems to this, that if the rest of society is going to get starved of cash and commodities are going to reap all the benefits, 
Well, it's not uh, rocket science to think that these governments are going to come in and take a bigger slice. The government is seeking a 10% tax on exports of coal and oil on income earned when each commodity exceeds a certain price. That threshold is set at $87 per ton of coal and $48 per barrel of oil. So basically, and I think it was $400 per ounce gold, like basically you have to be losing a lot of money on your production to not have to pay this 10% tax. It looks like it's been gotten rid of on gold. Coal and oil will remain in the bill. So interesting. And here's another story. I mean, all the news is turning into one big news story. Like this mining thing used to be like a kind of a, almost a separate news flow. But, you know, when Rio Tinto invests $35 million in new aluminum recycling center in Quebec, I mean, I see kind of front page news or stories that relate to the front page. This isn't some mining company doing some investment that has nothing to do with the rest of society or that, you know, society doesn't care about. This is kind of like, okay, we're fixing our supply chain here in the West because we have major geopolitical issues going on. Uh, Continuing, this is by Amanda Stutt. Rio Tinto announced Friday it is investing $35 million to build a new aluminum recycling facility at its Arvita plant in Saguenay-Lac-Saint-Jean, Quebec. The investment will expand its offering of low-carbon aluminum solutions for customers in the automotive, packaging, and construction markets, and the facility will make Rio Tinto the first primary aluminum producer in North America to incorporate recycled post-consumer aluminum into aluminum alloys, the company said. Clean aluminum scrap, sourced locally from used vehicles and construction materials, will be remelted to produce recycled content for use in aluminum billets at the Arvita smelter, as well as other products from Rio Tinto's Quebec facilities. You know, I assume the reason that Rio Tinto is excited about Quebec, I mean, among many reasons, you have jurisdiction. Look at what just happened in Colombia. These things don't generally, if ever, happen in Canada, and they have hydropower. So that sounds attractive, and long-term safe jurisdiction. Quebec probably is very friendly to Rio Tinto. And we have a quote from Rio Tinto Aluminum Managing Director of Atlantic Operations, Sebastien Ross, who said in a statement, quote, Investing in new recycling facilities in Arvita is another step in our strategy to expand our offering of low-carbon aluminum products and integrate the circular economy into our value chain. This will allow us to continue to meet our customers' growing demand for responsible, traceable, and responsible products. Not sure about the repetition there, but all to say, if you've been attending the Global Mining Symposium for two or three years, you would know all these terms like circular economy, you know, and low carbon aluminum, and all of these things have been discussed. So if you want to be on top of stuff, just sign up at events.northernminer.com because now you have, you know, Rio Tinto execs speaking along similar lines here. The recycling center is expected to be operational in the second quarter of 2024 and will have an initial capacity of 30,000 tons per year. Again, these dates seem pretty accelerated from over here. Generally, you'd maybe see a 2026 or a 20, like 2024. You get the sense that, you know, things are moving. Uh, There is somewhat of an urgency that we can see here. 
And finally, I mean, any of these stories could have been the headline. As far as I'm concerned, Japan's nuclear policy shift marks a turning point for uranium. We could have started with that. This is by Henry Lazenby. More than a decade after the 2011 nuclear accident at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant in Japan roiled the uranium industry, the country has announced a major policy shift towards restarting idled reactors. On August 24th, Prime Minister Fumio Kishida announced that Japan would restart more suspended nuclear power plants and look at developing next-generation reactors. This represents a significant policy shift amid soaring energy costs, a global fuel shortage, and extreme weather. According to Kishida, Japan aims to restart seven more reactors from next summer. This would increase the total number of reactors online to 17 out of 33 operable reactors in the country pre-Fukushima. Kushida also said that officials would look at extending the lifespan of existing reactors beyond the current maximum of 60 years. Officials have been instructed to come up with concrete measures by year end. Nicholas Picard, VP Portfolio Manager and Options Strategist at Horizons ETFs Management, tells the Northern Miner the reason Japan's announcement is such a big event is that it highlights how difficult the situation has become for energy grids globally, especially the ones that rely on imported energy sources like liquid natural gas. In the year to date, Japan's capital Tokyo has buckled under two power crunches, with one occurring during a significant heat wave. By restarting its reactors, Japan also hopes to curb its reliance on energy imports. Japan's announcement was more significant than the series of other announcements recently by major economies, including France, the U.S., China, and India. Picard said, quote, Japan is a real turnaround case because of what they went through. Another quote, this is, of course, a very bullish event for uranium prices and producers. So we start with a bullish story on commodities and we end on a bullish story for commodities. And with that, those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, let's just start with the U.S. 10-year Treasury bond. For context, it is at 3.069%, only about 0.02% higher than last week, but it did have some volatility. I think it was up at around 3.11 when I looked maybe yesterday, the day before. So it was up there. I guess yesterday was Monday. It was probably yesterday, so it's come back down a little bit, but again... For the second week in a row, above 3%. So maybe that corresponds to oil prices going higher. Let's just quickly look at oil as well for context before we look at our metals. Oil is at $94.80 for West Texas, and Brent crude is at $102.40. So Brent is above 100 bucks again. So turning to metal prices now, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets who provide us with these prices each and every week. And on August 30th, gold is trading at $1,734.53 per ounce. That is $2 lower than last week. Silver is trading at $18.73 per ounce. That is $0.25 lower than last week. Platinum is trading at $866.07 per ounce. 
That is $9 lower than last week, and palladium is trading $110 higher at $2,127.38 per ounce. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is $0.12 higher at $3.77 per pound. Aluminum is quite a bit lower at $0.80 per pound when it was up at, that's $0.28 lower. Now, I noticed mining.com is calling it aluminum alloy, so I don't know if that has anything to do with it. We're going to keep tabs on that one, but a dramatically lower price on our aluminum feed here. Lead is $0.03 lower at $0.91 per pound, and nickel is $0.03 lower at $9.76 per pound. Tin is $0.23 lower at $11.09 per pound, and cobalt is $1.14 higher at $23.26 per pound, and zinc is also higher at $1.67 per pound. That is seven cents higher than last week. So what do we see? I mean, I would say a status quo metals market, not too much change, some lower, some higher. I mean, the standout is definitely aluminum, but I noticed the title changed to aluminum alloy on mining.com. So yeah, uh, that's the only real standout. And zinc, again, kind of perking kind of up a little bit. I, I'd say zinc is a bit of a standout. But again, I think this is a market kind of like the stock market and the bond market and the oil market and every other market right now. It's kind of a bit of a wait and see what happens. Just like I was saying at the top of the show, it's kind of, uh, it feels like right before New Year's here. Like it feels like we're waiting for the fireworks. And that's my sense of this metals market. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we welcome back Paul from the Sirius Report to the Northern Miner podcast. It's a savage criticism, as he puts it, of the West. So, you know, brace yourself a little bit. So I let him go long. He's got very long answers, but they're very interesting. So we work with that. I hope you enjoy the interview. Feel free to leave comments on the YouTube or on the SoundCloud or on our website if you like. And I will see you on the other side. Today, I am pleased to welcome back Paul from the Sirius Report, who has appeared on the program before. I sometimes call him controversial, Paul, but I am very glad to have him back. Whatever you think of Paul's views, they are definitely informed. Paul, welcome back to the program. Well, Adrian, thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be back also. Yeah, to your point, look, yeah, I say things that are deemed in some quarters to be controversial, but the basic bottom line is I'm not interested in taking sides. There's things unfolding in the world, and there are always two sides to every argument. And I think the Western side to a lot of argument has been overstated, in fact, misinformed at times. And there's another side to the argument and another side to what's unfolding in the world. And I don't solely focus on that. I on the West, which sadly is declining. And there is a multipolar world rising. And I think it's important that people understand. And it's not that I agree with it. It's just like, okay, just not going off topic, but just a very brief point. The war in Ukraine happened for a bunch of reasons. And Western people need to understand why. Not why the West thinks it happened, 
Now, that doesn't justify Russia going to war. Absolutely not. But if we don't understand why things are happening, then we don't have an informed understanding of what is going on and why, sadly, many things have said that what happened during the course of this war have happened to the detriment of the West. So I, I, I'm not cheerleading anyone. I don't want any, any war. All wars are abhorrent, and it, it should never have got to the point in the 21st century that we're still fighting wars the way the way we are globally. But if we don't understand the position of Russia from their perspective, then we're missing a very important piece of the whole puzzle of understanding why things are the way they are currently. And, and I think that's an important point to make. What I kind of enjoy about your podcast, and I don't agree with I agree with a lot of it. There's a couple of things. First of all, what I really like about it is I think you've kind of diagnosed with almost a surgical precision the kind of political malady that afflicts the Western mind. You know, like I, I think you've kind of just really got a good sense of, you know, you say it's like, and these are all debatable points, and I don't want to go too many places here, but, you know, you make the point over and over this is not a conspiracy. This is incompetence, at least from a perspective that you're coming from. And yeah, so that's one thing I really enjoy. The only, and we got a comment about this on the last interview we did, and this is something that we kind of discussed before we hit record, sort of where I, maybe we diverge a little bit, you tell me, is on the China and Russia. I kind of think they're not as necessarily as good actors as sometimes, and sometimes you get criticisms for this on your show, you've mentioned it, so it's not a new thing, that maybe you're too friendly. And I don't think that's the right term. I think you're just kind of trying to call it as you see it. But where I might diverge is maybe on, I think human nature is human nature, and that their intentions are not necessarily super cooperative so to speak, but I'm not saying they're not. I'm just saying human nature is human nature, and I have sort of a mildly pessimistic view of human nature. Anyway, do you have anything to say on all this stuff? No, what you've said is perfectly reasonable standpoint. I mean, what we have to do, we have to judge things by what they are doing. I mean, but let's make a, an important point first. One thing I don't discuss with regards to the West, or very rarely, is internal domestic matters. Because, so people say, well, you don't criticize China, what's going on internally, but I don't do it in the West either. That's not my focus. I'm not the, the, to drag out every point. Yes, there are fundamental problems in Western nations. I'm not disputing there are problems inside China or Russia. This is irrefutable. My point in regards to this is, Okay, what is China and Russia doing internationally? What are we actually seeing? Not what we, we are told China and Russia are doing. And that's the important distinction. Now, thus far, they have largely not done anything remotely like what, what you know, US Germany is or the Western Empire has done. That doesn't mean in the future they may make some very bad mistakes. They may make some policy decisions that are abhorrent. And if they do it, we'll be the first people to savagely criticize them. And it is, you're right, human nature would be, this is impossible. We can't have an alternative world where we all cooperate, we all get on, we, we recognize there are differences. 
between between different nations uh, on that because that's just reality. But at the moment, they haven't done anything that you could actually savagely criticise them for and say that is a fundamental policy mistake. But we're at that cusp where multipolarity is beginning to take a more dominant role in the world. Unipolarity is in decline. This is just a statement of fact. There comes a point, and I know why the West is very fearful, because the Western attitude is, well, it can only happen the way it's, it can only happen, it can only be unipolarity. You can only have another world reserve currency or a nation that's effectively dictating and dominating policy decisions globally. They don't understand there is an alternative. And the alternative is unpalatable because they go, we can't do that. It's not possible. Well, it is possible. It is unfolding. We're seeing nations who have been, metaphorically speaking, and sometimes literally at each other's throats. And they're now starting to go, we've had enough of this. I mean, Saudi Arabia and Iran is, is a great example of this, where historically there's been enormous problems between these two nations. And we've now got to the point where they're almost on the verge of saying we're going to resume diplomatic relations between the two countries. This is an example where ideologically they're very different. They don't agree on everything by any stretch of imagination, but they're beginning to understand that it's far better to work on that basis than constantly be feuding with each other or, in other examples, at war with each other or constant economic, financial, geopolitical conflict. So it is a huge mindset change. Is it going to definitely succeed? Well, that's... We don't know, but at the moment, we are making progress. But this is a long-term thing. We're not talking a resolution in two years, five years. We need to be looking and saying, okay, we're going to see incremental steps, but this is a long-term thing. We're talking 5, 10, 15, 20, 50 years. Because, I mean, Africa is a great example for me. Eventually, that will be the strongest pole in a multipolar world. But this could take decades. But this is the direction we're heading in, and it's not a, you know, a straight-line progression. There is going to be times when we move forward and we move back, but it's an alternative. It's an alternative that, that the global South's embracing. They've had enough of unipolarity, but it's not that it's, it's, it's a given that it will succeed, and there will be mistakes made, there will be problems along the way, but it's an alternative the world's embracing, and that's my perspective. I've you people who had the vision to roll this out, they talked to the Chinese and the Russians, and that vision's now starting to roll out. And we've, I've discussed it for years, and it's very self-explanatory that these developments are happening, and we've been very accurate in, in charting the progress. But we're now at that crunch point where, you know, the Chinese and the Russians, if they if they want to do this, and they're serious about this, in a they're going to have to make some difficult decisions, and they may make some horrendous decisions. That's from my perspective, if they do. And I'm going to be very critical of them. I mean, one thing I've been minor point in some senses, although it has an impact across the world, I profusely disagree with China's COVID policy. I think it's now reached the point, it's ridiculous. And I've said that because, you know, the, the, the flip side to that is, most Chinese people in the West won't believe this. They support this. They want this policy decision to be made. 
it goes completely against what we might think in the West, but that's the whole point. We're not here to tell other nations how to do things. But from a personal perspective, I think it's a very, very bad policy decision to be made now, particularly given what COVID is now in reality. So that's a domestic issue. But as I say, we're at that pinch point where let's see what happens. But if they make very bad policy decisions, then, you know, then I'm going to criticize them. I'm going to be the, go out there and savage them very harshly for mistakes they make. The reason it appears I'm always criticizing the West is because the West has to take responsibility for all the mistakes it's made and it continues to make, and it's in decline. There's going to come a point when that will flip, and then the criticism is going to be probably more squarely levy, leveraged sorry, at uh, China, Russia, or the global South as they undoubtedly become a stronger and stronger kind of multipolar entity in the world. So I think it's an important distinction. I'm not anti-West. In fact, I've done everything for over a decade to try and say to Western governments or whoever, don't make these policy decisions. Be aware that China and Russia are rising. Don't treat them as a, an adversary. Work and cooperate with them. I've tried to do that. I'm not, I'm not anti-West, quite the contrary, and I've made this point many times. I want to see a strong, vibrant United States, but a, a great nation amongst equals. That's the distinction. That's very important for the United States itself and for the, the wider world. But the problem is most Westerners can't accept that. It's you know, the zero-sum game mentality, either you're with us or against us. And they don't understand that that, that sort of era of exceptionalism and uh, uh, unipolarity and hegemony is over. The world is not going to accept that anymore. And therefore, you're going to have to adjust your, your horizons, your goalposts, your sort of ideas of how the world operates in the future. That's a big ideological shift for the West, and particularly for the United States, I think. I want to get to medals, but before we do, because I think you're hitting on some very profound issues here. And I think, like, the way I sort of read it is it's in a sense, and maybe you'd agree with this, the West has become surprisingly unpragmatic and fairly idealistic in its kind of, it doesn't, and it looks like at least Russia to me, they seem quite pragmatic in their approach. And, you know, you were talking about Saudi Arabia and Iran. It's like, to me, that's a move towards pragmatism. It's like, this is not perfect, but look, at the end of the day, if we're not launching missiles at each other and we're actually kind of working a bit together, we may not like each other's view of the world, but we can, at least we're not, you know, this is good for both of us, an appeal to pragmatism. And we see it in the ESG argument, I'd argue as well, that in ESG, it's like we're going to transition to green, uh, you know, energy by mandate. And it's just kind of unpragmatic, if that's a word, you know. So do you have any thoughts on this kind of pragmatism versus idealism before we actually go into the metals? Yeah, you, you make a great point also. That's exactly the problem the West suffers from. Most of their policy-making decisions, I mean, it's very ideological. It's very emotive. I mean, for most people in the West, Russia is a very emotive subject. So, you know, if, if from the outset of the war, I don't want to labor the war too much, but 
the basic premise from from the West perspective is, right, we're going to implement crushing sanctions. The war will be over in a matter of weeks. Putin will be gone. Russia will all be crushed economically, financially, multipolarity is dead, and, and the world can, can carry on as, as it has been. And that was the, 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 the point to sell to the West. Of course, it's completely failed. But it's, it's kind of this ideological hatred of Russia that drives policy. So what happens is, and it consumes people in the West, where they see everything, whatever's happening, the, well, ultimately, it's like, you know, we've even got Western politicians going, well, we're going to have to make some, some sacrifices through the rest of the year, in through winter. We're going to have to suffer higher energy prices to defeat Putin. This is a ludicrous policy uh, decision because it's very clear it's not working. But again, politics is driven by this huge investment in political capital that says, well, We've started this. We we have to keep following it through. We have to hope eventually that Russia capitulates. We we have to keep the war going because if we just now say we're walking away from it, people are going to hang on. So Russia is effectively has won the war. We've suffered enormous economic damage. You told us it was to defeat Putin. Well, he's, he's, he hasn't been clearly he hasn't been defeated. Russia hasn't been defeated, and politically they know this is unpalatable. And the political uh, system is such they just want to constantly be re-elected. It's not about policies. It's just being re-elected. So they're going, well, we can't do this. But not realizing by implementing these policies, they're just destroying their own political empire anyway. I mean, one way or the other, they're destroying themselves. And the, the more they pursue this policy decision of just endless sanctions, they're clearly blowing up in the West's face. So, yeah, it's very ideological driven. It's not driven by pragmatism. It's not actually looking at what uh, policy decisions and somebody saying from the outset, OK, we, we think we're going to crush Russia economically, financially remove Putin. But what happens if that doesn't happen? What are the consequences? No one bothered to think about that because the ideological hatred is we hate Putin so much. We're just going to do this, and it's going to work. And, of course, it hasn't worked, and it won't work. I mean, Putin's popularity has never been greater in Russia. And the irony is, if he walked out of Ukraine today, within a week, he wouldn't be the president anymore because the Russian people are totally supportive of what Russia's doing. Whether the West likes that or not is not the point. That's the reality. So, yeah, we're suffering the West of making policy decisions not based on pragmatism. It's idealism it's ideological and it's the idea we've kind of gone into this ridiculous comfort zone where we just think well we're the west so if we want to do something we just do it and it works and the last not 10 20 30 40 years we keep consistently seeing how our economic financial geopolitical policy decisions have fundamentally failed so we need to stop believing in our own hubris that, well, whatever we do, it will just work. And, and, and actually start to be pragmatic in going, well, okay, what it, is this policy decision going to work? And, and is it actually a reality? Is it, is it something that you know, we have a, a huge percentage chance of this succeeding? But what happens if it doesn't? 
what are the consequences? There's no thought given to that. And, and that's the fundamental failure of, of an empire in decline. If you look in history, all empires have this period uh, where ascendancy and then they kind of reach uh, sort of zenith and then it's and the west has been going downhill for decades for various reasons and people think the empire is just starting to collapse it isn't but so you have these decades of not acknowledging that the empire is in decline and imagining everything's just business as usual and and therefore they just keep pursuing the same policy decisions because it's like they still think it's you know, when the empire was in ascendancy and because they don't see the warning signs. And it's like the old thing. It's like when the Berlin Wall came down, that didn't happen overnight. There was, a part, there was things going on for years beforehand. The end of the Soviet Union it wasn't an overnight decision. Things were in place. Okay, the West had its role in collapsing it. Point it. The Soviet Union was in decline years before, before the, you know, that iconic moment of the Berlin Wall coming down and, and really that's sort of symbolic at the end of the Soviet Union. It's These are kind of things that keep repeating in history, and we need to be very mindful of the fact that, you know, the, the U.S. empire or U.S. hegemony or the Western empire has made horrendous mistakes for decades, consistently making wrong policy decisions and not actually sitting there and reflecting upon the fact that, well, we keep making these mistakes. They just they kind of get buried because it's not good for you know politically you have to hold your hand up and say we we made mistakes so they kind of walk away from it pretend it never happened or just bury some bad news and move on to the next policy making decision but it's irrefutable we keep making these mistakes and we need to or someone somewhere needs to go hang on a minute this has to end we have to be adults we have to realize the world's changing and if you want to be part of that world, we have to start building trust. Now, trust can easily be gained, but, but once it's gone, it's very hard to gain that trust again. And, and these endless policy decisions that the West making with regards to Ukraine, the West thinks it's great, and pe most people in the West think it's justified, but they're forgetting the global South, or 87% of the world's population, Actually, he's looking at the West going, you're handling this completely wrong. And we don't agree with you. And you need to understand why the fact we disagree with you and we don't trust you anymore is going to have ramifications for you in the West. You need to understand the world's changing. 20, 30 years ago, you'd have got away with this. Times have changed. The world's moving on. And we in the West need to, to adjust our horizons and understand that things are very different now. And we're not going to be able to abuse the global south the way we have done, which we, we sadly have done for decades. And therefore, a different approach is needed. But that ideological mindset, that idealistic, hubristic kind of viewpoint is just constantly consuming us. And we, will, we continue to make bad decisions. Well... Barrick Gold's CEO, Mark Brissot, made a speech recently where he was talking about the uh, basically during COVID, how the West basically blew it when they hoarded all the masks and vaccines and like whatever you or at least the vaccines and whatever you think of the vaccine, good or bad. That's not we don't need to discuss that here. But 
the way that they hoarded them, the, the vaccines was kind of uh, for him, at least from what I understand, the way the, the West dealt with the, the situation, he was very disappointed with that. And to your point about credibility and trust, how it takes you know decades or years at least to build trust, it can be lost in a day. And to me, that was a very, that was like a massive you know, of a very revealing moment during COVID with the vaccines where the, you're, you know, the global South looks and goes, okay, I guess we see where you really stand and, uh, you know, how much you really are for us. Like we see where, you know, the reality here. And I don't think the West has recovered. And to your point, it's, and now like we keep on papering over these, these issues and we haven't really felt the consequences yet. But you know what? This energy issue we are starting to feel the consequences, I think, in a real way, in a way like we haven't before. It, it's like things are coming to a head. And now the West, frankly, seems incredibly vulnerable, you know, and we can get into these metals exchanges here that are popping up. So, yeah. So take it away, Paul. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, to your point about the uh, Barry, it's absolutely correct. I mean, we can argue as much as we like that China, you, you know, exploited this for political gain by helping the Italians. Okay, we're not we're not here to discuss what we think about the pandemic policy and vaccine. That's irrelevant to the conversation. But they went out in the world and they had COVID diplomacy. And the world went, well, hang on. China's doing this and Russia's doing this. And what's the West doing? You're right to help us nothing. And in fact, the West was was a I mean, eating each other alive at one point, going, it's dog-eat-dog, dog. we're looking after our own interests. What European Union? There's no joined-up thing policy. So, yeah, that was it was a very valid point, and it, and it was one aspect where the world starts going, hang on, there's a crisis, well, however we perceive that crisis ourselves, and what are you doing? Nothing. And, 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 and the nations like China and Russia would do it. We're making positive decisions benefited from the perspective of how the world perceives them. So yeah, it was it was a, a hugely sort of profound moment of, of a change of, of attitude in, in the global south, and not just the global south, even within Europe, there was questions being asked, hang on, we're supposed to be this European Union, and we've got this crisis, and we're not doing anything about it. We're just arguing with each other and trying to score political points and hoarding you know, whatever, whatever we think about vaccines and masks is not the point. The point is, yeah, absolutely correct. So I think it's worth addressing that point because it's very valid. With regards to, to metals, I mean, again, I get plagued, as I'm sure you do and countless other people, where everyone just fixates and focuses on the spot price of gold and silver and says, well, therefore, there's no future in gold and silver. And I consistently made the point that when the prices get smashed, it doesn't paper prices, it doesn't have any there any resemblance to the reality of physical demand and supply. We've got these two very, very different markets that operate in terms of physical and paper and just to digress slightly, although it's into energy. The Saudis effectively last week came out and said, we're sick and tired of the paper manipulation of the oil markets. And we might cut oil uh, production to reflect the fact that we're not going to tolerate this happening. So, and I've spoken before about the fact that 
physical oil markets and paper oil markets bear no resemblance to each other. It was almost replicating the nonsense we see in gold and silver. And 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 therefore on that basis, you know, it's it's not you shouldn't pay too much attention to the Western paper markets. And you rightly make the point. We're seeing countless examples again in the so-called global south, where nation after nation central banks are buying gold. We're seeing gold exchanges popping up so within India, within Russia. And in the case of Russia, they're, they're saying, look, you know, we were effectively excluded from the LBMA. So we're offering an alternative. We're going to get gold producing nations to be part of it. We're going to do all trade in, in non-dollar terms. We're going to make sure it's a proper physical demand and supply market. And yeah, effectively, it is completely challenging. The Western paper markets as they exist, but but of course this has come about because of Western sanctions. Uh, I mean, it's accelerated the process. There's a Moscow Gold Exchange. We know this. There's the Shanghai Gold Exchange. This isn't new policy decision, but they've accelerated developments because the global South perceives that gold will be an important component in we're in backing currencies in the future in terms of we have to go back to sound money. And of course, people in the West will scream, that's never happening, it's not possible. You know, China doesn't have enough gold. Well, China can reset the gold price to whatever it wants, so it can back its currency with gold. But we're not saying it's specifically just going to back its currency with gold. We, we may see a basket of commodities that backs a currency that comes out of the BRICS, or maybe the Eurasian Economic Union, or maybe the Asian nations, or maybe China and and Russia do it domestically and back their currencies, maybe with gold, maybe with a basket of commodities. But it's the idea that we are moving away from fiat monetary system, which, of course, we have to do. Because it's a statement of the obvious. It's completely failed. And, and therefore, you know, I mean, a great example with silver is you know, we, we, we've seen this relentless kind of smash on the paper silver price. And then what do we hear? By the end of this year, India is expected to have imported 8,200 tonnes of silver, which that's effectively, okay, it fluctuates in global silver production. We're talking a third of global silver production. If they're going to want to, this is a massive increase in their import. Now, based on physical demand and supply, that should be a shot in the arm for the price of silver. The fact it isn't proves the point that there's this massive disconnect between the paper price and physical reality. And the mere fact, if we go back to gold, that central bank after central bank is buying up as much gold as they can get their hands. I mean, Qatar's doing it as recently. I think they, they increased their holdings by about 50% in a very short space of time. I mean, all these nations can't be wrong. They, they're doing it for a reason. And it's very clear that Chinese have kind of hinted at this through through Beijing and the Russians have hinted, you know, that gold's going to be an important component of a future financial system. But we're also back to this point that people in the West go, but we control the financial system. It's always going to be us controlling it. The rest of the world, no, no, the, the rest of the world's not going to be able to do this. Oh, you know, the Chinese and the Russians and the BRICS, they can't have their own currency. What they don't realize is, if you look at the global south, they have the vertical growth markets. They're the ones with resources. 
Now, Russia can sell energy very cheaply to the global south now. That is extremely important if you're, because energy is the lifeblood of everything, of nations, corporations, etc. If they sell it very cheap, that's very beneficial to those economies. Nations in the global south are waking up to the reality. Well, actually, if you, if you de-dollarize, don't use dollars, then we're immune to what's going on in the West. We're not going to be hammered by credit rating agencies. We're not going to be to be subject to sanctions and all the things we've discussed previously. So that's a really important consideration that there are possibilities. These things are real. And I think for people in the West to go, the dollar will re remain supreme forever is just very myopic because these changes are happening. And when you have cheap energy, when you when when you have access to enormous resource bases which do exist in the global set, and all the things they have that we don't have because in the West, we've reached saturation point with everything. Our ability to consume, our, our, our ability to manage debt, and we've reached the, the point we cannot keep going. It's like people want higher and higher wages, but it's unsustainable for the broader economy. You know, we can't, people say the United States can just bring its manufacturing base home. Well, apart from the fact that's not possible to do it quickly. The question is, is everyone in the United States prepared to be paid Chinese wages? And if they are, what does that mean for the financial system, the economy? You have to completely reset it. You cannot work on that basis. So we've reached the saturation point. It, we have to fundamentally change. Global South doesn't it, because it's still got enormous growth potential. Okay, it's not straight line and they may make bad policy chain of decisions again and they may fail. But, you know, but so far they're succeeding and that that's where the, the huge potential exists. The West is going to have to radically change things. And that's why there's not a lot of interest in the West about precious metals. Not entirely. I mean some nations like Poland and Hungary have been buying up gold. This is you know, a statement of fact. It's not, you know, uh, it's something that that is solely you know, what the global south is doing, but they're far more interested in, in these alternatives and seeing there is a future. And, you know, they've looked at Russia and gone, well, okay, Russia has an enormous resource base, so it's in a quite a unique position, but they've shown how de-dollarizing not being, you know, part of the Western financial system is hugely beneficial. Well, hang on, maybe we want to be part of that. And, you know, maybe the idea that we go back to sound money and, and manage our economies on the basis of what we can afford to do, not we what we speculate and think we can do. I think is is a fundamental shift, and and gold and by extension silver are part of that. And of course, the other flip side with regards to to the gold and silver markets is is you know, the strains on the Western paper system are only going to grow because of spiking energy costs. Energy is a hugely uh, important component of mining, as we know. So there comes a point when mining operations in the West are going to start to have to be mothballed because they simply won't be able to afford to produce an ounce of gold and silver unless the price is significantly higher. Well, there's a huge pressure in the West, and particularly through the US, to suppress gold and silver prices simply on the basis that, as I've said before, if gold was for argument's sake, two and a half thousand dollars tomorrow, you would see the biggest stampede out of dollars and dollar-denominated assets into gold because 
alarm bells would be going off everywhere saying there's something fundamentally failure. There's some fundamental failure in the Western financial system. And that's why they're desperate to suppress the price. Because it's it's kind of symbolic of the fact that the West is failing. We know it is, but it's one thing us knowing this. And a lot of institutional types or high net worth individuals recognizing that just because something on paper says something. So it's one of those, again, this is the ideological mindset that, well, it's only a problem when it's a problem. They don't think of the future and go, well, hang on, we're seeing all these structural problems unfolding in the West. So it is, it's, it's a very different mindset between the West and the East. But again, for me, the paper suppression, there's two aspects to this. There's going to come a point when the West becomes drained of available gold and silver. And on that basis, then the paper markets are in serious trouble. But there's a flip side to this that also says where the global south are going, do you know what? We don't care about your paper market. We're going to develop our own markets that are, we believe is, is fair, it's equitable. It's going to be based on true demand and supply. We're going to do our own thing. And in the end, we're going to render your Western paper markets irrelevant because most of the world is going to move to what we think is, is a far fairer based you know, system that deals with physical reality and not paper illusion. And of course, the flip side to that also is if they do that and they succeed, you're going to see this arbitrage between whatever's going on in the West and what, what the physical reality is in the global south or the east and that's going to cause more drain because people will will go hang on i can buy some metal in the west i'll just sell it to the east and the east go thank you we'll take the metal so it's one of those things you people keep saying you need to fight the comics and the lbma you don't just leave them to keep doing what they're doing because they're undermining their uh, themselves by by virtue of well not necessarily that they specifically in terms of what's you know generating uh, paper markets, but they're going to suffer the consequences of this. And the question is, where are the major world gold and silver producers? If they then embrace the, the, uh, the global south's market for, for precious metals, in the end, how exactly is this paper market going to function? Who's going to be part of it? Because let's face it, if I'm a miner, am I going to sell my metal that's been suppressed in Western paper markets, or am I going to go to the east and go, I'd like to strike a deal with you because you're giving me a far better price, my physical metal. So they're going to sell it into these. So that's how it works. Don't fight the current system. Just provide an alternative that everyone wants to embrace. And that will see this dynamic shift away from the illusionary paper markets. And I know why people get frustrated. And I understand it. But there's a bigger picture here of what's actually happening in reality. And, you know, it's a bit like, you have in, you you insure your home on the basis that you hope you never have a problem. That you don't your house doesn't burn down or something, you know, some catastrophic uh, climatic event that destroys your home as well. But here you have this opportunity to understand that your house is burning down, and you have an, an opportunity to to insure yourself. So you insure yourself. You don't wait for the building to come home and the building's on fire. Going, finding up, going. Can I insure my home? It's too late. And, and that's the predicament the West finds itself in. So I'm not particularly bothered what the paper price of the gold and silver is in the West. It's just 
a process we're going through and, and eventually you know reality will 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 come to the come to pass and the irrelevance of the paper markets will be well it's an irrelevancy they either they evolve or they die and you know this idea but we're the west and we're going to dictate the price of, of commodities going forward well if you'd gone back even a decade ago with oil prices and actually said, do you know what? In 2022, the Saudis and the Russians will be controlling the oil price, not the United States. The United States will be the nation begging the OPEC plus to, to increase production to lower oil prices. Who, because they didn't, they went, well, we're going to have to raid this, uh, the SPRs to the lowest level in nigh on 40 years. These decisions, people would have gone, this will never happen, but it's happening. And, you know, and OPEC plus is going, well, we're sick of your paper manipulation. So Saudi's going, well, maybe we'll just cut production and whack the price of oil to $110, $120 a barrel. This is a big shift. It's happening. So we always have to be mindful of saying this will never happen because we've gone through periods in history where we've said something won't happen and then it happens. And this, again, comes back to this idea that the West controls everything. Well, it doesn't. And the oil markets is a great example where the influence of the United States is diminishing rapidly in terms of pricing, oil, and their ability. Okay, they can try and manipulate paper markets in the West, but OPEC plus will always have an answer to this. And the other thing is you can have whatever paper price you like, but if you're negotiating a contract to buy oil from the Global South or the Saudis, the Saudis will say we want Oil at this price, you you either pay that price or you're not getting any oil. And they could go to, or like Russia will do with so-called friendly nations. It will say to them, well, okay, spot price might be this, but you know what? You're a friendly nation. We'll sell it to you for a 30% discount. How does that sound? Yeah, we'll take it. Oh, you unfriendly nations, you're paying spot price because you decided you wanted to pay spot price. So this is this stupid policy decision where in the West we're going, but yes, we're sticking it to Russia. And you go, well, no, actually, you're sticking it to yourself. You're crippling yourself through stupid ideological, idealistic principles. You know, and, and the first principle is if you're going to challenge an adversary, you make sure you don't harm yourself irreparably, which is, of course, what we're doing. Well, I mean, it's back to that great gold expression, you know, the person who has the gold makes the rules. And, you know, and this hubris that we could argue that's happening in the West, I guess there's some oil in the U.S., but at the end of the day, if Biden is traveling to Saudi Arabia to try and get them to loosen the oil price, and frankly, if Saudi Arabia is coming out and saying, by the way, we think there's something going on in the paper markets, which seems to be what they were saying, and then the price of oil went up last week, and it seems like the person who has the gold, metaphorically speaking, makes the rules. And and to your point about this illusion in the West, it's I almost describe it as like, you know, we're in this media-saturated reality. It's like this hyper-real environment. And it's like the physical world is starting to collide with, you know, this our hyper-real kind of Western media, you know, whatever you want to call that. Game show, I almost want to call that. And... You know, and it seems like so interestingly, say for this paper, commodity prices are really 
where this is going to play out, you know, and we're seeing it in Europe. We're seeing incredible prices here for energy. And again, it's back to this the person that has the gold makes the rules. And sometimes the West, as you put it, just wants to say, well, we're the West. So we don't, you know, we make all those rules and our derivatives will collapse your price. And that's, you know, for all we know, that's, you know, that's at least what the Saudi people seem to be insinuating. So, yeah, I don't know if you have anything to say to that. I mean, I'm sort of summarizing what you were saying there, but. Yeah, it's it, an important point, but let's let's take this a stage farther. You know, the Saudis are looking at this going, well, you and the West are trying to manipulate oil prices to benefit you. And okay, we're not saying that the Saudis want to keep oil prices high because it benefits them. Like, let's not pretend it's one-sided. But the other flip side is <laughs> we've got this idea and we know to, to a small extent that uh, Saudi is selling oil to the Chinese and Yuan. It's small, but it, it's happening. So they're going to look at this and going, well, you know what? You're manipulating the price. We don't like this. Maybe we might just now accelerate and announce that we're going to in future trade all Chinese contracts in Yuan. Because we don't care anymore. We're sick of it. So by the West constantly trying to manipulate things for their own benefit, there are consequences for those actions that are very, very damaging. And this is one example of people who go, that will never happen. Well, of course it will happen because Saudis now looked at the, the sanctions on Russia and gone, well, the sanctions the central bank, they've stolen whatever amount of uh, reserves that they have stolen that moment to the bank. They've sanctioned their financial system. They're effectively trying to cut them off, apart from when it suits the West out of sweat. The Saudis are going, well, we could be next. So we, well, they could be. So what? Where's the incentive for us to keep trading in in dollars for oil when we could? There are alternatives. So actually, yeah, maybe we want to use these alternatives. And if you're going to keep trying to manipulate the market, which we know you're doing, and that's going to accelerate even further the desire to to get out of utilizing the dollar as much as possible in in oil trading in oil and saying well yeah there can be alternatives and the yuan's a great alternative for us we're very happy with it and you know by the way we there's all this other kind of cooperation going on where you know china and saudi arabia are signing deals the, the russians and the saudis have signed deals and there's a huge market for Saudi to it to exploit in China, and 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 China would go fine. You know, if you buy our oil in yuan, the market's out, and there's all these upstream downstream opportunities in China because, contrary to, to Western understanding, I'm not saying China could ever be the biggest global oil producer in the world. Far from it, but they keep making oil finds everywhere. Interestingly, one recently in Xinjiang. So you know, there are opportunities. So it's win-win win-win cooperation and the Saudis go, you know, we like the fact you don't criticize what we do internally as much as for me it's kind of ironic that the West talks about human rights records but doesn't seem to have a problem with what Saudi does but the big difference is China goes, we don't care what you do, it's not our problem what you do internally, we can work and cooperate. The Saudis go, well we like that idea because you're not wagging the finger at us, accusing us of human rights record, which, of course, uh, is justified. That's the big political shift as well. So the West keeps making policy decisions that is encouraging 
you know, the Saudis to go, well, the dollarizing is actually very good for us, you know, economically, financially, and, and also politically in terms of internal stability. So it's, it's a statement of the obvious. It's rather like how the West is panicking, particularly the US, and we talk about energy production. I think the US is completely overblowing its, its energy production because it seems to be going around the world. I mean, we're the biggest oil producer and then begging the world to, uh, they begged the Venezuelans who said, go away. You know, look, you tried to remove Maduro and we're not interested in now suddenly you, you want us to, to you know, produce a lot more oil and flood the market to lower the price. So we're not interested, go away. Same with the Iranians. They're trying to kind of suck the Iranians into, into the JCPOA thinking, well, you know, if we get them to do that, they're going to cooperate with us and flood the market with more energy. And your aims are going, well, actually, currently we can't. And even if we do, you're not going to benefit from it. We're going to sell it to friendly nations. You know, those nations who haven't spent four decades trying to topple our government, trying to destroy our economy, our financial system and collapse the nation. You know, we haven't forgotten you being consistently doing this. So why would we want to cooperate with you? And, and this is the problem. The U.S. has burnt its bridges and and the West is burning its bridges. So when it comes to energy and you make the point and you're absolutely right, the spiking energy costs in Europe is a great example of this, whether it's, a, you know, electricity or gas, which has consequences for us domestically, but also in terms of we're seeing Germany's industrial base cratering because operations can't continue with high energy prices. But again, that's that kind of idealistic kind of attitude that we just don't need Russia's energy. It's dirt cheap, but we don't need it because we believe there's these oil and gas supermarkets in the world where they produce all this energy and it's just lying there waiting for somebody like us to appear and go, hello, can we just buy 30 million barrels of oil? Yeah, no problem. When do you want it delivered? Tomorrow? Yeah, that's, that's fine. They had this mindset without realizing that, of course, in reality, the world doesn't operate that way. And the other thing is, you know, they're having to go and beg nations that have been abused by the West and saying, well, can you give us more LNG? Can you give us more oil? And they're going, no, it's not happening. A, we don't have the production capability, or maybe that's questionable, but we already have our existing commitments and we're going to honor those commitments because, you know what, that's how we work. We honor agreements we don't just turn our back on the nation because you know what you might want our energy today but tomorrow you might decide you want to overthrow our leadership and collapse our economy because you know what you've done that historically so yeah europe's facing this energy crisis and i think it's and and not solely because i think brussels came out either yesterday or today and, and essentially held the hand up and went we have an energy food and financial crisis they're all running around panicking, going, what are we going to do about it? And are not realizing they're incapable of doing anything because if they want to resolve it, it's not about agreeing with Russia. They need to pick up the phone and say, okay, yeah, we made a really huge policy, bad policy decisions, and we need your energy. They're never going to do that because they can't do that. But that's in reality what they need to do. Okay, if the long term they want to wean themselves off, well, good luck trying to do it because the moment it's not reality but that's where we find ourselves so of course you know it's a bit like what was it i think johnson came out it was in the british media where effectively 
there was this kind of rather sensationalistic headline because, of course, Western nations are going, well, hang on, we're in serious trouble. Uh, we, you know, we, we've got huge problems because of, of energy, but, you know, we don't admit to the people that we're responsible. So I know, let's just blame Russia. So here's the situation. We decided in our infinite stupidity that we were going to impose sanctions on Russia to cut. And we didn't want Russian energy anymore. And we were going to collapse Russia's economy and remove Putin. And we failed. The fact we failed and now the sanctions are blowing up on our face and, cr and crippling our economies, we're going to blame Putin. We're going to say it's all his fault. And the stupid irony is a lot of people in the West will believe this, but particularly in the UK. Oh, yes, of course, it's all Putin's fault. And, uh, but because they can't admit they've made, made absolutely monumentally bad decisions that are blowing up in their face and said, from day one, this is precisely what will happen. I even contacted Western governments to go, you won't take any notice of this, but you are going to destroy your own economy. Sanctions on Russia will not work in listed reasons. But that's not really the point. The point is that's where we're at. So the question is, as we get into to autumn and winter, are we going to are we going to see higher energy costs? What's that going to do to the broader economy? What does that do to the financial system in terms of creating instability? What happens to the likes of you and I? I mean, if if we work for a big corporation, even they're going to be impacted. It might cause serious impact. It may cease operations, and we're seeing that or curtail fifty percent of production. I mean, I made the point on Twitter. Um, see, there was a local pub where in the UK where, where we live, and this was a great business model. The guy there was, it was superb for years. He did. He worked out. He saw a niche market. He was able to exploit it. And his pub was full of people all the time. And he said to me, only, what, two weeks ago, he said, my energy costs are going to be going up 150 200%. They've already gone up 150 200%. He said, I can't pass on that cost to my customers because I'm going to have to double the price of the food on the menu, they're not going to come and eat it. He said, so and this, this policy decision is going to cripple my business. I'm going to have to shut the pub until energy prices are reduced. And if I can manage that long, he says, I might end up in default. My pub will collapse. My business will be gone. And extrapolate that because we're very consumption based. It's going to consume the whole hospitality sector, all the service-based sector, which is employs, I don't know, enormous amounts of people in percentage terms. And even the big corporations going to suffer because, again, you know, look at producer price inflation in Germany. It was up 38% year on year. I mean, it's totally unsustainable. There's not a single business that's going to be competitive. And, and if you look at Germany, let's assume it then has to pass on all this producer price inflation. Because when Germany does export, it's a big exporter, has an industrial base. Well, the nations it's exported to are going to go, we're not paying your prices anymore. Oh, hang on. There's this other nation who's getting cheap energy and produces these goods to the same standard that we want, but for a fraction of the price. Well, where do you think we're going to go? We're going to go and buy it off them. So this is the consequence of extremely bad policy decisions. And, and you know, it's, they, they seem to be now at least acknowledging there's a problem, but they have this crazy idea that somehow, well, we can still, we can sort this out. Well, 
back to the point you can't print energy, you can't print food, and you can't print commodities. And the Western financialization of everything has always been predicated on the fact we can just keep printing. Printing solves the problem. Printing doesn't solve real-world problems. It solves illusionary world problems. It solved the financial crisis in inverted commas in 2008 because that was in an illusionary world. They managed to sort the problem out, not realizing eventually that would seep into the real world. Now all the problems are in the real world. They don't have an answer because they only deal in, in illusions. They don't deal in tangibles. It's all intangibles. And that's the problem we're at. So what are they going to do with regards to energy? If they don't lower energy costs, eventually they're going to gut the entire West. There'll be nothing left. And that sounds extreme, but it's a reality. I mean, here's the point. If energy costs keep rising, how are we as consumers going to pay those bills? How are we going to afford to pay 20, 30, 40% more for food or 100 or 200% more for energy? And the fact that we're so indebted in the West, how are we going to pay? How are we going to manage our debt burden on an individual and collective basis for corporations, businesses? It's unsustainable because interest rates are rising. And even if they're not officially rising, you try and get a loan now, you're going to pay a, a much higher percentage because banks are going, hang on, you're more of a risk because everything's blowing up. So it's this kind of process we're in. So when people say you're savaging the West, it's legitimately. These are horrendous decisions. And there'll come a point, you know, sadly, where this is going to consume more and more people inside Western nations. This is irrefutable. And this is going to have a devastating effect on us. And for me to be critical and saying something has to be done is because I actually care about people in the West. I don't want the likes of you and I and, and a huge percentage of the population to suffer the consequences of these crazy policy decisions. And that's why I savage them. I wish I didn't have to. I wish there was someone in the West who had an understanding of the gravity of the problem. But I think privately and, and from what I've been told and that we're seeing, there's privately a recognition we're in serious trouble. And they're all talking about societal unrest is going to be our undoing. What are we going to do about it? Well, they should have thought about that a decade ago. Or QE zero interest rate policy. How they handle the pandemic just pumping endless amounts of money into the real, you know, the real world, which was going to have consequences. Their policy decisions to do with the Ukraine war, which is going to cause crippling energy problems and a hike in energy prices. One point to make about energy prices, there's no doubt, energy providers domestically are trying to exploit this as well for, for personal profit, which is futile, but we're already seeing you know, major energy surprise. They're in trouble. I mean, look at Uniper. They posted, I think, half-year losses of 12.5 billion, either euros or dollars, but who cares because it doesn't matter. They're on parity. So it's not just that, you know, energy providers trying to exploit something, they're in serious trouble as well, because the West functions solely on this idea. Everything just works. It, it just keeps working, even though there's a hundred problems that exist. But don't worry, it's, it's all ticking along. But once one problem manifests itself, then everything falls apart rapidly. And we're seeing that particularly what, in six months since the start of the Ukraine war. So my attitude is it's not about defending Russia fighting a war. It's about are the policy decisions we're making going to harm us irreparably and far more than any impact we're going to make on Russia as a result of it. 
Well, surely that should be what drives our policy decisions, protect ourselves first and foremost. If you can find ways to put pressure on Russia to end the war, fine. But don't destroy yourself in the process and sit there and then go, we've destroyed ourselves, but it's all Russia's fault. I mean, it's ridiculous. But there comes a point when that will not wash with people in the West because they're going to say, you've got to find a decision. Well, the, the obvious decision in the illusionary financial world is just keep printing. Well, yeah, you could print endless amounts of money. You could give everyone a thousand euros a week. But where's the energy? You're still not going to get the energy and the food. That's the structural problem that exists. So there may be a situation they end up just printing endless amounts of money and, and trying to bail everyone out, but it doesn't address the fundamental problems in the real world. And they're incapable of doing that because they've lived in this illusionary bubble that the financial system is the Western economy. That that, that every, all the wealth will trickle down from this crazy illusionary financial system that's failed and we'll all be we'll all benefit hugely and we'll all live very happy lives. Well, they got away with it for so long. But eventually, if you don't deal in reality, you don't actually realize that the real economy is what matters, that you have to produce goods and sell them at a profit. If you have a euro, you make a euro 20. And you have a, a financial system that supports a real economy, isn't there to, to ignore the real economy and just think, you know, we're, you know, we're, we're just having this endless party in the financial world and everything's great. We're, you know, we're doing great. So who cares? And, and that's why the financialization 40 years ago is now finally completely unraveling, even though it failed in 2008 and we should have made the right decisions. We didn't. The consequences are now. It's not only consumed the financial system even worse than 2008, it's consumed the real world because you can't get away with this and repeatedly get away with it. Sadly, that's where we're at. And it's now a question, okay, is, is someone going to have the backbone to actually go, we have completely failed. What are we going to do about it? I mean, that's, that's a like political suicide, but the alternative is, Political suicide because you know if you have hungry nations or cold nations in the winter, and it affects millions or tens of millions, or in in the eurozone, a hundred million people, whatever it is. History shows people don't react well to these things, and if the financial system implodes, what are you going to say to them? Well, you're hungry, you're cold, your pensions destroyed, your 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 investments are destroyed, uh, you're at serious, you haven't got a job anymore. You can't pay your mortgage anymore. You're highly leveraged. How you, you can't justify that to people and go, but it's all Putin's fault because they're going to go. Hang on, you've I've lost everything, or potentially I'm losing everything. What are you going to do about it? And they're going to sit there and go, oh, we can't do anything we, because we don't know how to do it because we don't deal with the real world. So the West has to go through this kind of, for want of a better word, reset. Not the cold WEF great reset. Obviously. But an understanding, you can't run economies, financial systems on the basis of an illusionary paper. You have to work on the basis of real tangible things. What do we do to stimulate real growth in the economy, provide real jobs, provide stability? That means that people can live normal lives and we all have to you know, rein our necks in and not and not work on the basis that we just want something today, so we have it today. We're going to have to fundamentally, radically 
change our mindset. And that's the way it's going to be because people should have learned by now that this idea, I want everything today, turn off the time things we don't need, is not how reality works. And we've been conditioned for a long time into believing that that's possible because nothing's kind of contradicted it. 2008 was the wake-up call. But for most people, it's, oh, it's been fixed. They fixed the financial system. Well, they didn't, A, didn't fix the financial system. They did nothing for the real economy, and they've been spluttering along, creating fake data that the economy is functioning fine and not actually in reality. If you measure real GDP, the West's been permanently in recession since 2008. This, people will disagree and go, this is nonsense. but. Look at how they measure GDP. It's, it's a work of fiction. And, you know, recycling debt and calling it growth is not growth. You know, all the policy decisions, you know, it's like including we, we manufacture an iPhone in the world, but we're going to book the entire cost of the iPhone. And that's part of our GDP. And then, and then we sell it to you and, 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 and that's growth. There is no growth. We're, you actually look at Western economies in terms of real growth, the, the growth drives and strip all the noise out, there's very little left. So, and that's why you look at Russia's GDP, whether the West likes it or not, and they go, oh, Russia's just a useless economy. Look at the tangible reality of their economy, and it's far stronger than the West. And Western minds get blown by this. They go, no, it's not. Look at the data. Well, Stop looking at illusionary data and look at the fact whether you like Russia or hate Russia. What's Russia got? An abundance of energy that it can produce cheap. It, it doesn't sell itself energy domestically. It's it, you know, the cost of energy is what is the driver of the Russian economy. Russia has enormous resources. It has food security. I mean, it has all the things we don't have in the West currently, and yet. Apparently, their economies failed, and we have these strong, vibrant economies. Well, there's reality playing out in the Russian economy, and we're just sat there believing in this illusion that that, that somehow, because all this, this data says one thing, we're fine, everything's, but look at reality. Go out in the street and look at how people are suffering in the real world, and it just bears no resemblance to the illusion. We'll put it this way. It seems like we're hitting the limits of like behavioral economics to a certain degree. It's like, it's almost like we've been trying to run the world with behavioral economics or something where we're just trying to calm the markets and, you know, based on sentiment is, you know, just a, a quick point on your criticism of the West. I mean, there's nothing more Western than criticism, in my opinion. I mean, this is, we're allowed to do that here. And that is to our strengths. That, that, is, that is why the West is strong is because we have criticism and we are we allow ourselves to criticize ourselves and each other now just on this energy issue have you heard about these smelters in europe that are starting to shut down like there's that one in spain i believe that rio tinto had and then trafigura i think there was it in the netherlands have you been hearing this uh, about these smelter shutdowns and like to me this is just more ominous evidence that things are getting pretty real here and it seems like it's still in an abstract on an abstract level like these are simply news stories that we read 
and that the real world impacts are still in the pipeline. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, yeah, for sure. It's an ongoing process. So some of them are going to be in the pipeline, but yeah, there are smelter suffering. There's BASF has talked about having to curtail some of its operations. We're seeing fertilizer production being affected. Well, if you reduce fertilizer production, you're going to affect crop yields. That has an enormous impact on food prices. So yeah, I mean, of course, it's it's a statement of the obvious that the longer energy prices remain high, you know, that all industrial production depends on energy. So the bottom line is producer price inflation skyrockets. And therefore, you know, it becomes uncompetitive or simply unsustainable. So yeah, across the entire industrial spectrum, whether it's smelters, whether it's fertilized production, whether it's just producing you know, cars, whatever they're producing in Western nations, it's going to start to have a materially damaging effect on their business. So there comes a point where some businesses, small businesses may go to the wall and may just say, we're ceasing operations. And in certain situations, if you curtail and cease operations, you might never be able to start them up again. That's unfortunately very commonplace in industrial production. So, or you may, bigger companies may say, we're cutting production by 20, 30, 50%. You're going to start negatively impacting the job market. You're going to negatively impact the economy. And therefore, you're going to create more and more shortages. <laughs> These shortages are going to cause more and more spike in energy costs because the, the implication is as well as in terms of commodities, if you're producing less commodities, then there's less commodities in the market, which creates inflation in, in those markets. And the problem is, is the longer we go on in terms of having unaffordable energy, and what's the risk that our access to energy markets diminishes and decreases? And there is the risk, no one's actually sat down and gone, is this a problem? So for sure, there, there is a huge risk that increasingly whatever industrial production exists in the west is going to be is going to get impacted and very seriously and, and if you start to impact production of raw materials or access to raw materials in the market and those producers who need those raw materials are going to are going to go to the wall because you know, what are they going to do say well i'm going to manufacture a car but you're going to have to pay twice as much as you were previously even you know i can't afford this because, you know, I'm, I'm having to pay 200% more for energy or whatever, food, whatever. I mean, we've seen in the Netherlands, compared to the UK, I mean, just look at the inflation in food. It's in some, not in every part. In any part of the food chain that involves intensive production, the inflation in food is staggering. I mean, it's you look at the things going, hang on, what the, what are you, this is unsustainable. People aren't going to be able to afford to, to, to absorb. And so then, of course, what are you also seeing? And the UK is a good example where we're now starting to get endless strikes because unions are going, we want higher wages because our, our members can't afford to live. And it's a spiraling problem. You increase wages, you create more price inflation. It's just a no fate complete. So this is sadly one of those inevitabilities. So yeah, we these stories that are coming out of energy companies in trouble, needing bailouts, and those who obviously buy this energy, like smelters is a great example. Yes, it's becoming a problem. So this is going to cause production shortages of 
of raw materials that we need in the West. And, and the other flip side to this is if you have the global South going, you're unfriendly nation, the global South will start going, no, you're not having our commodities and our raw materials. Bear in mind, you know, we produce them a lot cheaper because we're getting cheap energy. No, you're not having them. We don't trust you. So we're going to sell it into the global South. And, and okay, we're not saying this is a utopia for the global South. They've got a, problems themselves currently with energy shortages, food production issues, and inflation. Um, we're not d disputing that. But that's also as much as anything a consequence of being part of the Western financial system. So, yeah, the, the expectations. We're going to see more and more industrial production curtailed in the West that creates a whole bunch of problems we've just highlighted. I don't know if you saw that uh, that story where Germany went and visited Canada. They had a delegation and here it is, Canada Inc.'s Memorandum of Understanding with German Automakers to help meet clean transport demand. So I think this is great. I mean, and this, if the West can do anything, Canada, of course, bring Canada on board. They have resources. I mean, they're hard to get out of the ground. It takes a lot of time and permitting. And this is the nature of the problem. Like, so Germany can sign an agreement with Canada. When are they going to get those medals? Because the problem is now. If you if you ask me, yes. Well, you are a great point. Yeah, let's just. It looks great on paper. Oh, look, we're diversifying out of Russian markets. We're finding alternatives. Well, there's a number of problems with that. And you highlight one eloquently. It's one thing saying we're signing an MOU. Well, how long is it going to take for us to get these these metals or whatever out of the ground? Is it five, ten years? What's the cost? Is there any guarantees that, you know, given, given the cost of energy, that we can even extract them out of the ground that's economically viable? That, that's the first problem. The next problem is, is everything's based on a Western cost metric. So if you want to produce an ounce of gold in the West, it's going to cost more than it costs in the East because everything's more expensive. So, okay, Germany in 10 years or five years, whatever it might be, might get these, these commodities it needs. But here's the problem. It's going to be more expensive because they used to get cheaper energy. Because they had cheap energy from Russia, it helped them sell their, their, their produce their, into the world. Well, if they haven't got that anymore, then everything's going to cost more. So in 10 years, they might have the raw materials and go, we're, we're independent of Russia. And then they want to manufacture a car and sell it to whoever, and the Chinese, for example, which there is a big market. China's going, well, we don't want your cars anymore. <laughs> we can get them somewhere else for a third of the cost. So you're independent, great, but you know what? We don't want your produce anymore. So be independent and have no market to sell your goods into. Or maybe you want to sell it to each other in, in the West, but hang on, everything's more expensive, so you're just creating more and more price inflation. Because the bottom line is, we're back to this point, we've reached saturation in the West. We are simply uncompetitive because we've just killed every market. We've, we've just basically abused every market, and we're now paying the price for that. So it's all well and good, and it looks great in principle. But the question is, okay, what does Canada need to do to massively reduce its own costs so it can extract? whatever you know, commodities, raw materials 
so it can be competitive with the global south. It ships it to Germany, and Germany's cost metric is such that it can still be competitive with other markets. How does it achieve that? This is just basic thought process that people in the West are not even entertaining. They're not going. We need dirt cheap energy. I mean, what Europe fails to to appreciate uh, is whether people like this or not. The only reason Europe survived as long as it has is because it had cheap Russian energy. If you don't have cheap <laughs> Russian energy, you're in big trouble. So these are the things again that you know, Germany rushes off to sign this this agreement with with Canadians, and it all looks great in principle. But again, where's the thought process that says, how does this play out in reality? How are we going to manage for the next 10 years? Never mind the fact that we're not going to be economically competitive, even if we can achieve these objectives the way Western financial systems and economies currently operate. So hang on, we need to think about this. So if we can do it in 10 years, what are we going to do? Keep saying to Russia, we're going to cripple you with sanctions. We want to remove your leadership. We we want to crush your financial system, but can you keep giving us commodities? And they're going to go, no, we're not, we're not going to sell them to you anymore. So you're going to have a problem for at least 10 years or whatever, five years. And even when you think you've solved the problem, you haven't. And this, this is the kind of mindset. You say that to people in the West and they're going, you're just pro-Russia or pro-China. I go, no, this is economic reality. You know, We need to deal with this reality and start to understand and if we want to find alternatives to China and Russia, fine. No, I'm not I'm not criticizing that. My criticism is the way they think they can do this is never going to work. And it's going to create more problems. And in fact, in the even in the short, medium, long term, it's going to it's not going to resolve anything. It's just going to make our problems even worse. We just need to accept the fact we're going to have to buy cheap Russian energy for the time being. Because that's unfortunately how it's going to be. And we might find that very unpalatable, but this is reality. So let's stop threatening Russia. Even if we hate them, we profusely disagree with them. Let's behave like mature adults and say, okay, this is not sustainable. What are we going to do about this? This is how adults work in uh, or should work. And at the moment, the West is behaving like a petulant child who, when something doesn't go their way, they keep throwing the toys out the crowd. And, and then going, oh, hang on, it's still not working. Let's just throw more toys out the pram. Let's sanction Russia even more because somehow that's going to resolve the problem. And we know irrefutable, it's not going to resolve the problem. Resolving the problem is having to make some very unpalatable decisions from a Western perspective and understanding, unfortunately, that is how we're going to have to operate. I mean, whether we like it or not, that's, that's reality. And, you know, if if you know, ad, that's the big difference. Adults have to deal with reality, and we don't have enough adults in the Western world to accept there is a reality to this, and we're going to have to adjust our horizons accordingly, even if it sticks in our throat that we don't like what we're doing, and, and that's just how it's going to be. Well, I don't know if you noticed if the weather, if the temperature went a little lower where you are. I assume it did because here in Berlin. Yesterday morning, I almost felt like the season began to change. And you know what the first thoughts were in my mind? It was Russia gas. It was just like those two words. So as we look into the fall here, I mean, can you give us a fall preview or 
I mean, you're not in the, you're, I'm not asking you to predict the future, but I guess, what are you looking at then, Paul, as we wrap up here? What are you focused on? What's kind of, what do you have your eye on? Well, obviously, let's, because we have two worlds coexisting, obviously, I have huge interest in developments in the multipolar world. What's going on in the global south? What are they doing in terms of for economic development, financial development, geopolitical development? That's clearly very interesting because this is having a bigger and bigger impact on the so-called unipolar world. In terms of the unipolar world, sadly, it's just tracking the endless demise of the West. And obviously, from the perspective, as you say, and you're kind of right, we've had 90 degree temperatures for about 10 days. And it's a bit cooler. And kind of this morning kind of went outside and went, you know what, it's not autumn, but you kind of feel, maybe I don't know whether it's a psychological, but you kind of feel there's this change coming. So yeah, as we progress into proper autumn and into winter, we're going to have to face the harsh reality. We're going to need to consume more energy. Are we going to be able to have that energy? What's going to happen to ongoing price inflation? What's going to happen to the broader economy? And 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 in a sense, what's happening to, to Western financial systems? So it's not just what's going on in Europe. It's also what's, what's Japan doing? What's the UK doing what's North America doing, but principally the United States. And you know, there's all this question: When's the Fed going to pivot? When is it not going to, or is it not going to pivot? But frankly, it doesn't matter. The destination will be the same. It's wreckage. It doesn't matter whether the Fed decides to hike interest rates and blow everything up that way, or doesn't, or lowers interest rates and pumps QE to infinity. Either way, you blow everything up. The the journey's going to be different. But debating. That somehow one's going to radically change the end result is, for me, is a waste of time. But can we, given we're in this cycle of six monthly cycles, September, October is typically when you see stresses in the financial system. So I'm always kind of observing things and going, can we see stresses? And there are certainly stresses in, in Western banking system. There's no irrefutable. Is this something they can, again, bluff their way through? Possibly. But it's it's a process of diminishing returns. They're not getting stronger by delaying the date with destiny. They're just actually weakening things. They're making things far worse by virtue of trying to delay the date with destiny. Instead of just accepting it's over and accepting in 2008 it was over and financialization was dead. And we need to stop thinking we can run economies on that basis. Of course, they didn't in the rest of its history. But... So that's the process, just looking and observing and understanding big tectonic shifts geopolitically, economically, financially, but also just understanding that focusing on illusionary paper markets, whether it's Forex, whether it's gold, silver, spot price, whatever it is, whether it's GDP, because it's all just a work of fiction. It has no basis in reality. So worrying about what uh, what they're saying in terms of, of that is has no basis in my observations, I look at what's happening in the real world. What are we seeing? What's tangibly happening? And it's irrefutable that we are now having serious economic financial problems uh, because of policy decisions, not just uniquely the Ukraine war, but also just pumping trillions of dollars and euros on the back of the pandemic and going, well, this isn't going to cause a problem because we printed trillions before that without actually even understanding 
that was in the artificial bubble of the financial system. You contained the inflation, but you had inflationary bubbles there, as we said before, whether it's bond markets, equities, etc. This time you put it in the real world. And once you put it in the real world, you can't contain it anymore because it's got a life of its own. It's not central banks can't control the real world. They can't control demand and supply. They can't control these problems. And it's impossible. And yet people go, well, if they raise interest rates, that will solve inflation. It won't solve inflation if energy costs keep spiking. Inflation's going to keep rising. You could have interest rates at 20%. But if you put interest rates at 10%, what are you going to do to the West? You're going to destroy everything because the entire West depends on endless credit. If you effectively cripple corporations, you cripple sovereign nations, you cripple the individual and cut off the oxygen supply to their existence, it's pretty obvious they're going to die metaphorically. And we need to just accept that that's the reality. So it's just focusing on a bunch of things, looking for all the kind of signals of what you know, people think Western financial systems is what's going to crash the West. Well, I did a podcast, the last one, talked about hedge funds. Hedge funds are a massive problem in the West, but you don't see many people talking about why they are a huge problem because they kind of absorb some of the things that banks walked away from. They're largely unregulated. It's very opaque. No one knows what's going on. And suddenly regulators go, oh, hang on, we, we, may have a pro we may have a problem here. No, you've had a problem for years and you've not done anything about it because, again, they only work on the basis that something's a problem when it is a problem. They're not proactive. They're always reactive, but they're reactive about five years too late. It's a bit like, you know, hey, there's an argument about the Fed policy and raising interest rates, but they're always too late because they don't actually want to raise interest rates because they know the consequences, but they're under enormous pressure to do so. But again, people think this is 1970s inflation. The United States of the 1970s bears no resemblance to the United States of today in every facet of its existence, not least its economy and the indebtedness. These problems didn't exist then. So making all these comparisons for me is, is futile. We have to accept the world's a very different place and it's just observing things, understanding the interaction and and realizing whilst two worlds are coexisting, they very much interact. And also not to try and place too much store on what's happened in history as though that's going to be an indicator of the future. Because I think people look historically and go, yeah, the West had problems, but we bounced back and we were still dominant. Well, we're at that point. That's not really what's going to happen in the future. And the West will not be dominant. The world is changing. The West's going to have to adjust how it operates in that world. And for elements or significant elements in the West, but particularly the US, they can't deal with it. They can't cope with that. You actually say that to them. The red mist descends. They absolutely just can't cope. It's, you know, then they get aggressive and angry and uh, because they just don't want to accept. All empires have a finite lifespan. And the West has been in decline for decades. I've made this point before and people don't like me saying this or tell me it's nonsense but for me the united states has been in decline since the great depression we're talking nearly 100 years the us 
jumped the gun too soon. He was doing really well in in the late eight, you know, eighteen hundreds. It was, and then it decided it was going to flex its muscles and and it made bad policy decisions in the early nineteen hundreds. And and it, you know, the U.S. should have now been assuming the mantle, or maybe twenty years ago, of being. I'm not saying an hegemonic power, but a a major global power and done things the right way. And it would have succeeded, you know, if it hadn't had all this exceptionalism and spending tens of trillions of dollars fighting pointless wars and actually invested it, invested that money in the United States, made the US a really strong nation that the world trusted. It would have been a very different outcome, but it pushed it pushed the button. It decided it was time for it to become the dominant hegemonic power. Uh, and by the end of the two world wars, they were slapping themselves on the back going, job well done. You know, it's the dollar reigns supreme. We've got NATO. We've got the World Bank. We've got the IMF. We're laughing. But they'd already fundamentally sowed the seeds of their own destruction. So in history, it's all not just a matter of assuming the mantle of, of a global empire, but understanding timing is critical. And just as a small point to this, in 2008, when the West collapsed, Chinese well, elements in China went, now's our time. You know, we have to assume, and Russia turned around to them and said, no, it's not your time. You're jumping the gun. Don't do it now because this will spectacularly blow up in your face. So they held back and went, okay, we're not doing it. And if China had really insisted on trying to impose that, China would have collapsed by now. Okay, there's people who believe China's going to collapse, but I've seen headlines every year for 20 years going, it's the, the end of China, and it 20 years later, it still hasn't happened. So that's a, that's a whole separate talking point. But that's effectively where we're at. And for me, the US pushed the, pushed the button far too soon. I mean, it didn't look at the, the Great Depression and go, we've got serious problems. We've made monumentally bad decisions to end up this way. Hang on, we need to reflect upon this. Okay, there's an argument about the causes of world wars and all what in reality cause it, but the point is the US made fundamentally bad decisions and really has made fundamentally bad decisions ever since. I mean, they you know, they had that little halcyon period in the fifties and sixties, but by the seventies the wheels were coming off. The eighties and financialization was a total disaster. And really it's been this slow kind of grind into decline, and here we are in 2022, and it, you know, there's people who deny reality, but it's self-explanatory. The U.S. is failing rapidly, and just because it thinks it's got the world reserve currency, which increasingly it hasn't, that well, we're fine. We, we'll just keep being able to print money, and or we'll just keep selling treasuries. No one wants to buy treasuries because they don't trust the United States. So this is where we're at. So it's a fascinating time in global history that. We'll see how things unfold. I don't put time scales on things because everything's event-driven, not time-driven. But the next sort of six months or so as we get through autumn and winter you know, is going to be a very telling point in this big fundamental paradigm shift that's happening. And for me, it's not. I'm not frightened by it because I've known this was coming for 20-plus years. It's just a question of, it was an inevitability. Unfortunately, it could have been had less impact on us, but we can only do what we can do, and, and we just have to accept that 
these fundamental changes are coming, whether we like it or not. And we just have to hope sooner rather than later, the US and the West decides we can be a great nations amongst equals. And this is the future. And this is unfortunately, we're going to have to just suck it up and deal with it. But in the long term, it will massively benefit us to do this as well as the world. And it's the 21st century. And if we haven't realized by now that trying to destroy everyone else and, and we're going to dominate and control if people haven't worked out that, that can't work anymore then then we really are in big trouble because it's self-explanatory you know the age of dominating the rest of the world is over it just simply is not a sustainable model anymore. i mean all this focus on the fed is kind of embarrassing. I think that the West has been reduced to this, that we're going to wait for some committee that sets interest rates for everybody. I understand why it's important, but at a certain point, this gets a little bit absurd. Just on a final point here, you know, it seems to me in Europe that there's just not enough energy to state something very obvious. And so we see these prices going exponential. Final kind of comment here. And it seems to me that it's just going to keep going up because there's not enough energy until somebody in that need of energy, someone that needs that energy, says, this is too much money and I have to, I can't buy the energy. And until that happens, it's just going to keep going up is what it looks like to me. And I'm not sure how many of us are ready to turn off the fridge. Or if it gets to that point, maybe it's heavy industry. But you you take my point here. Like it it seems like this thing's just going to keep going until something big says we can't buy energy. You're absolutely correct. It's just you know Germany's uh, I think is a good example of this. The political system is now beginning to go whispering. Uh, hang on, we 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 have a political position to maintain, so I don't know how we deal with this. But maybe it's you know industry commerce trade who's going to say to the, the german government that's it enough is enough or maybe it takes huge societal unrest and we have to hope that never happens but it might take that it's going to take something pretty drastic to make western politicians go okay we're going to have to do a big u-turn i don't know what the u-turn is and they don't even want to think about it but yes i mean that's an inevitability because it's very clear we do not have the the capability in the west in the short term medium term or even long term to do without russian energy people like to believe it but it's just not sustainable and you know and particularly given the markets where the west could have got cheap energy principally russia and iran i mean iran can produce a barrel of oil for about 13 dollars if you're going to spend decades or years trying to destroy these nations why are they going to want to cooperate with you? they're not going to because they don't trust i mean why would iran after decades of of being trying to be crushed is suddenly going to turn around and go don't worry us we we trust you now everything you know let's it's all forgotten let's just move on they are deeply distrustful and they go well we can sell our energy to other markets to people we can trust and this is great, and you know. So why would we want to 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 come back into the fold? We're not going to. So, yeah, it is. It's just a matter of how absurd and insane does things have to get in the West before someone who is in a position to influence decisions goes, "That's it. It's over." 
Exactly. It's like you've acted expediently up until this point, USA. Now we're going to act expediently and you can't, you know, attack us for that. You know, like you, you've set the example here for us. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. And it, there's an, a kind of an inevitability that the US thinks, you know, it's never been more unified with, with NATO countries or Europe. Doesn't actually realize that that's a very short term game. And the long term is they're going to create massive alienation because more and more people in the West are going to realize, well, we followed your policies. And where has it led to? Total destruction of our you know, economies and financial systems. So we're not going to put up with it. It's just a question of who's going to blink first and say, bite the bullet and go, no, no, no more. And there are noises coming out of the European Commission, albeit very quiet ones, noises coming out of Germany that people are saying enough's enough. But there's one thing politicians privately saying it, do they say it publicly? And when do those public outbursts become something that translates into a tangible policy decision? They're, they're very different worlds as we know and that, but that's where we're kind of at. Paul from the Sirius Report, thank you so much for joining us once again and giving us your fall preview here, what I'm calling a fall preview. Uh, where can people find you if they are interested in hearing more from you? Well, obviously, principally, we're quite active on Twitter, as you know, and that's at the Sirius Report. Um, and that's quite interesting. We, we've grown. It's, it's kind of bizarre that a war causes, but we've increased over tenfold in six months. I think we're nearly at 90,000 followers now. So we're quite active there and we put our stuff out there to try and get people to engage and think differently. And yes, as you say, we've got our podcasts, which is you can go to the, the website, uh, which is obviously the seriousreport.com. It's 475 a month. In dollar terms, it's cheap because we believe people should have access to information cheaply. We've been approached several times to take it private and offered stupid money to take it private, and we've refused because we believe people, but we have to charge it. We invest a lot of time and effort. We can't do all this for nothing. We try to make it affordable so people can earn, you know, and if you subscribe for a year, you get a month free. And compared to payers, we're much cheaper. And it, well, the intention was always to say it's about getting more and more people, the business models, getting a lot of people, not just a few people, and they can pay us $50 a month or $100 a month because you know, I don't think that's reasonable. And what we've done in six years nearly is, is just to map the future, what the future was going to be, the rise of multipolarity, the decline of unipolarity, and 1,520-odd episodes later, We've been accurate. I mean, we're not blowing our own trumpet. We have. We've laid things out. Things have happened the way we've said they were because we believe not in entertaining people, but informing people. And it, they're not always palatable statements we make. In fact, often people get angry about it, but this is reality and we have to face reality. And, and it can be unpalatable. Nothing. I'm not pleased that the West is in decline. I'm not Please, that you know, we're we're not we're increasingly not in a position to be party to global decisions. I don't want to see that happening, but it'd be ridiculous for me to pretend it's not happening when it is. So we just lay it out. I'm not pro anything. I mean, I, as I said, in the future, as the world changes, if Russia and China make bad decisions, and I'm going to call out it's like Taiwan. You know, for me, whatever we think about Taiwan, just a brief point. For me, if, if 
China decides to invade it uh, militarily, it's a stupidly bad decision. And I've said it all along. It would be a ridiculous decision to make. It's for many, many reasons. And it's precisely what the United States wants China to do. And it should just ignore the US. It's like, you know, the, it's like a screaming child. Just ignore it. You know, just let them do whatever they want to do. They're never going to push for a war. They don't want a conflict with China. They just want China to make a bad mistake because they think that will impact China's stay, standing on the world stage. And it might well do. Just don't, you know, so I'm not adverse to criticizing nations. And as I said, I'm not dealing with the internal politics. I don't go on about what the United States does domestically. We could pick on lots of faults of all nations. That's not what we're here to do. I'm not here to say criticize China domestically because the irony is most Chinese people like what China does domestically. This seems unbelievable. And to Westerners, I understand why, but they genuinely do. They support the government's policy-making decisions. They believe that they're doing the right thing. And 800 million Chinese got taken out of poverty into middle class. So they're going, that's progress. It's a very different world. And, and we have to not try and change it because we think this is how China should be. China will be what China's always going to be. And over time, it will evolve. And in 50 years, China won't be the way China is now. This is reality, but we just have to focus on the fact that there are broad economic, financial and geopolitical changes happening that are far more important than me going, well, what's China's social credit score system, even though the West has no idea what that actually means in reality. But that's, again, a separate talking point. These are not important decisions that affect our lives. We have to focus on the things that are affecting our lives on both sides of these two worlds coexisting. That's far more important than, than me savagely criticizing or perceived to be criticizing China for things that a lot of the time isn't reality anyway. If you talk about problems China has, the West doesn't even understand the problems China has. It just believes there are all these problems that, that they've been told exist but don't exist. And you know, Russia's the same. I mean, Russia has internal issues and problems like every nation, but focus on the reality and how much do these internal problems, how much are they impacting us? Not at all. In fact, actually, they're impacting us detrimentally in terms of Russia and the war and the support for, for Putin. But in a broad sense, it's their external economic, financial and geopolitical decisions that are having a big impact on us. And we need to look at those and say they are impacting us. And why they're impacting us. And nothing would please me more if in tomorrow we could start reporting great developments in the West, that the West is making these positive changes. At some point that will happen. Whether that happens today, tomorrow, or in 10 years, we don't know, because that's going back to the ideological, idealistic way of thinking. But at some point it will happen. And when it happens, I'm going to be the first person to go, we're seeing great developments. The West is finally making the necessary changes. And and we hope that happens sooner rather than later because it will benefit us in the West, but also a byproduct of that, it will benefit the world. And, and we just have to hope that happens. But at the moment, we're a million miles away from that. But things could change on, you know, they could flip on a dime, so to speak. We might have something that happens in a month or two's time, and it radically changes the mindset. And it might be they have no choice but to do that. And 
we have to hope that happens and 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 be optimistic that that's going to be a reality and uh, and we look forward to the time when we can present the West in a better light, but it's very hard to find anything to be objective about with the West. It's, I mean, it's a statement of fact that for objective, what's the West doing that's a positive and nothing. But we have to hope that changes because if it doesn't, we're just going to have more and more problems until, like we just said, there's the eureka moment when someone goes, no, this is, this is the defining moment. We're not going any further with this. We're going to change radically our our policy decisions and that could be when we flip on a dime and we then start to go this is the defining moment when the west has changed course and we can start to talk constructively and positively and that'll be a wonderful day i mean nothing would please me more it's i don't take any pleasure in savaging the west for for two decades or longer i mean I, it's very it's, it's not a nice thing to do but i'm not going to sit there and pretend to the contrary because we're just deceiving ourselves. And what's the point? If we haven't learned to to deal with the unpalatable things we don't like, then we're not we're not really functioning as adults. We're still trying to be childlike and think that the world's a wonderful place and life's great and, and we're not you know, and everything's just going to be, you know, fine today, tomorrow and next week. I mean, we're still in a lot of ways very childlike in our thinking in the West and we need to start behaving and thinking like adults. And I'm not levying that at any individual i'm just saying in a broad sense we need to do that it's very very important well with that thank you once again paul for joining us and we look forward to you joining us again in the future yes a real pleasure and thank you for for, having me on today much appreciated And there we have it, another mega interview with Paul from The Serious Report. Congratulations to all you who made it here. That was almost a movie in length. It was a movie in length. So again, I hope you enjoy it. I hope you're enjoying the rest of your summer, what's left of it. It's been a fantastic summer over here. We have lots of exciting interviews coming up in the coming weeks. If you want to help out the podcast, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.